Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at the Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, and funny things are funny. <laughs> Today we're talking about Minute 57. That was funny, Pete. Which begins <laughs> with Night Flight and ends with Bruce reassuring Steve that he doesn't take offense. Back on the show, it's Bubba Wheat. Hello, Bubba Wheat. Ow! Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> we are in the Wishbone Lab, and we are... Well, and again, just real quick. Our helicarrier flying at night. I want to just... You know, I don't want to dismiss the fact that we're we we ended our last minute with the helicarrier. We're starting this minute, and I just want to check: it's nighttime. Is is there a reason that they like turn their cloaking devices off at night? You think? Like, are they just not worried about it because it's night? Uh, because the underside of the ship is already the same color as the night sky. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think they have like little lights? Yeah, I, I think it it does. I think it does kind of blend in still uh, other, I guess, other than, you know, the, the massive hole with all the lights. But <laughs> other than that, <laughs> other than that, Andy, I mean, we've got it figured out. My cluster of stars is moving across the sky incredibly <laughs> fast. Like how many times have you looked up and seen a thing shooting across the sky and said, don't worry, it's a helicarrier all the time. <laughs> the other question I have is, okay, this goes underwater like this what we're seeing here the underside of this i know where you're going right now (laughs) it is an awful lot of space to like have regularly just underwater all the windows and everything i'm a little uh surprised that they have such a hugely open space uh that is just completely open to kind of be filled with water when they are uh when it's um water bound and I mean, I would assume that the windows are going to grow like uh, kind of slimy moss all over them. And uh, I don't know. I just feel like I just don't know if it's the best way to to have constructed this. I don't know. You may have missed your calling in some sort of <laughs> operations or human resources capacity as you think of the damnedest stuff. <laughs> oh, no, it's the logistics. Like, but what about the... The, the mossy slime that's going to grow on all these windows. Who's going to clean it? That's right. Mossy slime. Galaga guy. Well, that, you, know, you could say that that's the, uh, you know, they use that to trap this bubble of air, which helps with the uh, uh, buoyancy. It's buoyancy. <laughs> that's smart. That's smart. Oh, God, these people with these no prizes. Pete, we're not going to have any no prizes left by the time this show is over. Holy cow. All right. We'll give it to you for this that one. Um, all right. Well, we're coming into the lab. Bruce and Tony are busy, and uh, they're, they're kind of we're coming in on this conversation as they're trying to, they're basically already at work. They're tracking the gamma readings, trying to figure out what's going to, uh, what what clues are they going to, uh, uncover to figure out where the Tesseract is. And uh, this is where we see Bruce actually using, I don't know what sort of funky tool that he has come up with, but something to basically do a reading on the scepter and realizes the scepter also is giving off these gamma readings. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a great start to this moment here. I, I like the way that the conversation plays. 
But I want to jump into the Homer cluster and talk about this a little bit. Um, is, is there anything before Tony brings up the Homer cluster that either of you want to talk about? Well, I do want to know what that big, you said some sort of thing. I'd like to know what that some sort of thing is, because it feels like all this technology, anything attached to a screen seems to get thinner and thinner and thinner, except for this one mobile device that is a giant pelican case with a very, very thin screen and lots of big. So that's I, that's the gamma related to the gamma detector that he's broken out there. Why is it so big? You mean what, what Tony is using or what, yeah, what, Tony I was talking is using. About what Bruce was using? Yeah. So what is Tony? Tony is using this big pelican case. Yeah. That has a little flip up and it has a lit up grill underneath behind the screen. What is that all about? Like that seems like egregious, egregious production design. Well, I, I imagine that's, you know, a, a portable computer and it's, it's that big, <laughs> which shows. <laughs> ah, the which, early days yeah. of laptops. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, you know, this is Tony Stark level laptop. So that is like a portable supercomputer. Well, he certainly has a lot of plugs running in and out of it. There's so many giant plugs. <laughs> That's my problem with it. Everything he does, like he has a supercomputer in his suit that is smaller than this thing in the briefcase. What could it possibly be doing? That's my that's my ask. So I, I will never know, but it's ridiculous. Yeah, and, and Bruce's handheld thing does feel very Star Trek. And, and, and it's funny um, because... You know, right after the the Homer cluster line, uh, Tony Stark says that uh, that it's running at uh, six hundred teraflops. Do either of you happen to know basically what uh, Data's processor speed is for his like, <laughs> Commander Data? Yeah, Commander Data. What is the next? What is what is Lieutenant Commander Data's processing speed? Uh, basically, sixty teraflops. So this is ten <laughs> times faster. <laughs> than Data's uh, well, android brain. A lot has happened since the future, probably. So. <laughs> yeah, I was I was trying to I was like, what does he mean with that? And I was looking up uh, teraflops and flops, which it's a measuring unit, which means floating point operations per second. A normal computer, or rather a CPU's theoretical peak performance can be calculated by multiplying all these different things together and coming up with its flops. An Intel i7, I'm looking at an article that was written three years ago, has about 100 gigaflops. And so he's talking about 600 teraflops, which is actually about, I believe, six petaflops. It just kind of, kind of keeps going at these different flops. But yeah, you can actually get some supercomputers like the first uh, there, the world's first vector processor exceeded 100 gigaflops, but now, like, you have things that are into the petaflops. So you have some incredibly flat, fast supercomputers nowadays that are way beyond data. Yeah. And data didn't, they, they didn't even describe it as uh, flops. He, he just mentioned, uh, 60 trillion operations per second. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. It's an interesting computation. And I guess it's just more, uh, you know, the writers finding more computer talk to kind of throw in here too, uh, to make these two sound like they're talking about a lot of really smart stuff. And it works. I love the way that when Tony throws these things out, it just sounds really cool. Yeah. But I did want to talk about the Homer cluster because I, I don't think I realized this until I was doing research that this is, this is not something that's scientific. This is actually from the Marvel comics. Okay. Where did it come from the Mar Marvel comics? Uh, from Iron Man number 298 in uh, September 93, Homer, the heuristically operative matrix emulation rostrum, 
was Tony's sentient AI. He designed it with Abe Zimmer. It was it operated his computer system at home and his armors, and eventually he would use it to um, to develop Jarvis and Helen. So it was actually Homer was what a he was precursor using. to Jarvis. It was a precursor to Jarvis. So I, they threw this in here that he's basically bypassing Shield's system so that he can send it to his own system that can read every do everything faster. And that's the whole idea that that he's talking about here is like, let's skip their stuff, use my stuff, and we'll get done a lot quicker. Hmm. I like it. I just like that. I mean, I don't think I knew that the Homer cluster was a thing, but there it is right there yeah. in the comics. Well played, Feige and company. Once in a while, we still get some of these little Easter eggs thrown in that are that are fun references. Now, I but I did have a question, though, because <laughs> this actually goes back to earlier in the minute. So Bruce is reading the scepter with his funky, weird science tool that he has. And he says the gamma readings are consistent with Selvig's reports on the Tesseract. Now, I was like, does that is that dangerous for them? And I was thinking, like, (laughs) if all of this stuff has all this gamma radiation, I mean, gamma is like radiation poisoning. And I and I know the readings aren't huge. And obviously, they've been around the Tesseract. But I mean, nobody can touch the Tesseract. But it just made me wonder, like, should people like, you know, be getting sick as they're around these things? Should non-Bruce Banner people be getting sick as they're around these things? Right? Like, I have to assume Bruce is probably fine. He's, He's already probably okay. If anyone's g- okay with Gamma, it's Bruce. Yeah. yeah. Right. Tony he eats it for breakfast. Tony, on the <laughs> other hand, like, I don't think the arc reactor in his chest is gonna, is is tuned for Gamma radiation. Well, I, I think that the reason that, uh, if I remember how they explained it at the beginning, the re- the entire reason that they brought Bruce in was because he was specialized in in gamma radiation. And so I'd imagine that the that the amount of radiation that give that it gives off is so minimal that only someone with a specialization in gamma radiation would be able to use that to, to track it and find it. But shouldn't Tony be vomiting in the corner <laughs> from exposure <laughs> to all this radiation? That would make for a very different movie. Just like how Marie Curie's uh, notebook is well, yes. still be dangerously radioactive for the next 1,300 yes. years. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, Bruce Banner is Mary Curie's notebook. Like, <laughs> yeah. nobody should be even hanging around him. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, I, I also like we're getting the references to kind of his past. And again, this, I, we've had some moments of this Bruce referencing the previous film, which was a different Bruce, but I like that we're getting that sense, like kind of broke Harlem, those little nods. And it's, uh, it's, I don't know. I guess I like that it does feel like there is that connective tissue, even if, uh, even if the actor had to change. Um, but we, we hadn't really talked to you much about, um, or at all about the change in Bruce's. What do you think about Mark Ruffalo as, as our character? I mean, I, I do think that he's different and, and he has really evolved the character over the past, what, uh, you know, 15 years. I guess it's just 11 years from now. Yeah. From this one. Yeah. I enjoyed Edward Norton's take on Bruce Banner. But I think it it would have been harder for him to integrate into the MCU. 
I feel like Ruffalo has made the transition into the MCU and with Professor Hulk and, you know, where he is now at, at this point where he can kind of switch back and forth with relative ease, even though this one kind of introduced that the ease of switching and the, the two personalities have kind of become closer and closer together as the the years have gone on through the MCU. And I'm not sure if Edward Norton's Bruce Banner would have been able to do that because um, I think you guys talked about how Edward Norton, what he did best was being that nervous, panicky, on-the-run character. Yeah. There's definitely uh, an element of him that works there. And it's interesting when you said, you know, as as part of this team, you have a harder time picturing that. And it's interesting trying to see Edward Norton in this grouping and seeing, like, could I see him playing with this uh, set of actors? And while I probably could, I, I agree. I, like, there's something about Ruffalo that just I feel like does fit better. And maybe it's just because now, like, when I think of or- uh, Norton in a group of actors, my brain is just going to Wes Anderson stuff because he's been doing a number of his films. And that's a totally different type of approach to to the Marvel films. And so it's... But you it's, know what? I would throw in Glass Onion to that, right? Like, sure, I feel yeah. like it was a totally different vibe than the Anderson stuff. And actually, like, I, I may have answered this particular question differently before I saw Glass Onion. But I can, I can actually... I can get a sense of a different vibe from Norton that he's capable of of other gears, um, and and he may very well have played with this with this group of actors before. Then I always had this sense that he was such a good guy for being kind of st- like stressed out on the run. Where Ruffalo, I would never have put in in that capacity, but I would not have swapped them either. I I, I would never have imagined Norton could have played the 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 team player. While Ruffalo, I think, locks it. So they're just such different Bruce Banner experiences at different parts of sort of his life. Um, we, we may have gotten the best of both worlds. Could you see Eric Bana in here? Everything. Eric Bana <laughs> should have been CGI'd into all the characters in this movie. <laughs> all the characters. Yeah. Yeah. Eric Bana, Captain America, Tony Stark, Eric Bana. Yeah. All Eric Bana all the time. What do you think, Bubba Wheat? Do you like uh, Eric Bana's Hulk? The movie, not a ton, but uh, I I did like Eric Bana's, Bana's performance. And, yeah. you know, I, I, ages ago, I did a, a podcast. You know, it, it was ended up being a short series. I only did like three episodes where I interviewed fans of lesser, um, you know, the, the lesser superhero movies, um, either ones that were, uh, you know, underappreciated or ones that most people considered bad. And I did an episode on Ang Lee's Hulk. And I talked to, you know, several people that really loved that version and got their takes on it. And, and I also did an interview with one of the original writers of the, you know, one of the first drafts, the first or second drafts, because that went through, you know, a ton of script revisions, uh, John Terman. And he, like, he was incredibly open about, you know, you know, so open that, you know, afterwards he was like, you know, some of that stuff don't, <laughs> don't share. <laughs> and, 
because I, I don't want to get in trouble for it, but it, it was incredible. Yeah, right. this, like, this interview <laughs> ends on a note of regret. <laughs> I mean, it, like at the time, he was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, but, you know, don't don't publish it but uh yeah he, that was incredible some of the, the stories that he talked about in the, the the difficulties in the writing stage and the you know how he was going for a certain process and then like 90 percent of it changed and ended up you know with something completely different with what's on screen yeah i, I know we did a, a hiatus episode um with kyle and rob before that movie uh or before the we started the incredible hulk season and I remember doing some reading about the the various iterations of the scripts. And I know I, I read one or two of those different versions, and it was a very, very different movie. So it's it's interesting to see how much it changed and just like how much of a challenge it was for them to nail it and try to figure out exactly what they were doing. Because uh, it definitely was a project that was taking a lot of time to uh, you know get made. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I liked Eric Bana's Hulk, too, and I, I think that he would be an interesting... I, I could actually see him... I, I think if I were to to rank them, like, how I would like to see them, I, I don't know, I guess Mark Ruffalo has just been doing it for so long, I, I would still probably put him up top, but then probably Eric Bana next. Like, I think I could see Eric Bana in here doing this yeah. with this group, and then Edward Norton. Um, but again, as you're saying, I think Edward Norton could fit in very nicely. I think they could all work, but I, I, you know, I'm just so used to Mark Ruffalo now. And of course, bring in Jennifer Connelly. I mean, I know she already <laughs> did voice work, but <laughs> get her in person. Right. Yeah. What do you think of this gag that, um, that, uh, Tony picks up? I'm not exactly sure what it looks like a really thin screwdriver, but clearly it's got some sort of electric, um, charge and he zaps Bruce with it here. I, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Like, I, I understand that it's something that Tony Stark would do. Maybe not with the, the electric zap, but I, I feel, I think they, like, cause you can tell that they just added the zap in post. Uh, and I, I feel like, you know, maybe even the actors didn't even really expect that it was going to be a zappy thing that maybe it was just going to poke him like it's just supposed to be sharp. Right, because uh, I could see that, and but I do love that you can kind of see Mark Ruffalo almost breaking, because you know he, he looks like he's literally just seconds from cracking up. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> it tickles. <laughs> it's like a, this whole thing. It's like a. It's like a George Lucas just got at the effects for R two D two gag. Right. It's like yeah, R two D two needs to have like shocking stuff too, and. uh I, I that's kind of what it feels like to me. Like this is what, what is what is he doing carrying this thing around? I get it. I, I get the the gag is better when he turns around and we get Tony looking in his eyes. Like that's fun. I, I think that's really cool. I wonder if there's something other than poking, tickling, shocking that that would get there. Because here's why. Oh, I uh, follow on point. Because the we already have an example of this with Banner in the house in uh, with uh, Black Widow, with Natasha, of surprising somebody to get a reaction, right? And it was done, I think, so much better in that sequence. It was done in a way that was actually kind of scary. And I think it would be funny to have Downey just do something, I don't know, maybe a little more significant is the word. How do you think Tony Stark would 
react if uh, if Bruce Banner did try to pull that stunt on uh, Tony, where you know he snaps, you know, and makes it sound like maybe he is going to get angry and Hulk out. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Tony always has the suit. Right. Like you can just imagine like a flick of the wrist and he's got the glove on with the with the repulsor in it. Like he's standing back and ready to do something. Right. Like he doesn't have that yet. You never know where it's going to come. He's got very shortly. He will have to run out of the room to go get his suit on. You just ask for armchair rewrites. I'm armchair (laughs) rewriting. I actually do like that. uh, That question, though, it's interesting if Bruce had thrown it back at him and acted like he was starting to rage out like what would tony have done here because this as we were saying in our last minute this is the scientist who like eric selvig when he sees science he's got to do it he just can't he just can't stop and so he sees bruce as this uh thing to kind of test and he wants to see it in action but if he did i imagine that there would be some pretty quick regret (laughs) The the ch- the challenge is that I love so much the the following lines like Tony's banter, jury's out, you've got a lid on it. What's your secret? Mellow jazz, bonco drums, huge bag of weeds. Like the delivery on that is huge bag of weeds. <laughs> <I'm an idiot. laughs> huge bag of weed. Uh, I I just love the delivery of all of that. I think it just so plays. I like to think that it was a bag of weeds because it's he was bag of weeds. Of that he was a gardener <laughs> and that was what he did to get rid of his stress. And like, I need to go weed the backyard again. No, it's it's the aromatics, the uh, essential yeah. oils, the lavender. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, it's uh, the lines are great. And I really enjoy that, especially because, I mean, this is when Steve shows up. He pops it, his head in to kind of have a conversation with them and, of course, catches catches Tony doing this and freaks out. He's, you know, pretty much reprimanding him at the fact that uh, he could threaten uh, this could turn into something that threatens the lives of everyone on the ship. So he's being very serious. Tony is being very playful. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about the relationship of these characters and how they are so different and they're constantly testing each other and pushing at each other. And we're seeing so much of that in all of these scenes. We definitely get a lot of that here. But I do, but I do like Bruce's line that we are going to cut off at the end of this minute because this is essentially, as I was just saying about the different characters and their reactions with one another, Bruce is showing both of them that he really does have a lid on it. And his line to Steve is like, it's fine. I have a lid on it. I don't have to, I I wouldn't have come on board if I couldn't handle it. And it's, uh, you know, I, I think that that speaks strongly for the way that these characters are put together. Uh, All right. Well, any last things about this minute or should we come back tomorrow and talk about pointy things? Uh, there, there are just a couple little things. Um, at, at the very end of this minute, I, I do appreciate that you can see a, uh, a tool that I recognize, a multimeter, just a, just a standard multimeter, uh, stood up at the end of the desk. Not a Stark branded multimeter. <laughs> yeah, just, just a typical one, something that I use on a daily basis. But I, I also like the, the costuming, especially in this scene. Because I, I think here it really reflects these three characters' personalities. Because you have 
Captain America, he's fully suited up wearing his Captain America outfits with just the, the hood pulled back. And we have Bruce Banner wearing the, you know, his, the purple shirt in, in order to get the, the purple comic book connection in, but it's also kind of loosely buttoned. It's not, you know, it, it kind of, it's, it's rough and ready and he's got the, the sleeves kind of rolled up. Like it, it's, it's not sharp. It, it's, it's very casual. And we have Tony Stark in the Black Sabbath t-shirt that you can see the arc reactors lights coming through the t-shirt. And I, I think that just really highlights the, the three different personalities in this scene. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And I also think that it's such a nice touch. Anytime we get Tony and civvies and you can see the reactor, I think it's a cool look. Yeah, it's a very cool look. I imagine as as an actor, like I, I'm assuming that they had to like tape they had to tape that little thing to his chest that probably would, would be quite irritating, I would imagine, <laughs> to have on all day long. That's probably like uh, you know, just a basically a little LED strip lights kind of thing. Where it's it's very thin, but it probably does get a little warm. Yeah, right, I would imagine. You know, I was I was going to make a crack about the fact that they happened to uh, already have a stand for the uh, for the scepter on this table, but as you look at it here, you can really see that it's not necessarily a stand that's specifically designed for this. It's a stand using a bunch of it. I don't know. It looks like you know the the probably the different types of engineering um, pieces for a table like this, a work table that has, uh, you know, all the little screw holes and everything so that they can put something together quickly for whatever it is they need to prop up. And I, you know, I, I think that that's actually kind of a cool way to show that this is a lab that's designed to kind of handle things quickly. Quick draw, quick draw engineering. <laughs> it does look like the, the scepter is like fully, at least on one side. The, the one side, it, it's kind of open. It's just in a cup. But in the, the one towards the handle, it looks like it's fully enclosed to where you couldn't actually pick it up. Because I, I know that he does pick it up later, but I don't remember. I'm not sure if the stand setup changes between now and then. That is a good question. Because, yeah, because he will very quickly managed to pull that uh he'll be holding that scepter and does make right. me wonder exactly how did that get into his hands um if it had been locked. because it is a ring and it's held at a point at a narrow point and the uh the scepter gets wider on either end so it couldn't be slipped out of that ring either no exactly yeah well i'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, when we get down to one of those scenes when he does finally pick it up so we'll have to keep our eyes on that pete i'm looking at it i'm gonna i'm not gonna stop looking at it <laughs> but the, yeah, starting yeah, now there you go. starting now good don't take <laughs> your eyes off all right that's it for everything with minute 57 so uh but we tell everybody again about your show and where they can tune in oh uh, sure my my main show is it's time to rewind but i i also have a long-running written uh movie blog that focuses on superhero and comic book movies it, it actually started back in 2012 the year that this movie came out. Uh, um, it's flights, tights and movie nights.com. And I have written reviews of over 500 superhero and comic book movies out there. I'm, I'm not nearly as active, but I do try to, uh, write 
written reviews of new movies as I go see them. And I, I try to get some older ones here and there, but mainly it's just been like the newer ones as they come out. So there's like one every few months or so. Nice. Nice. Well, we will have links for that and uh, all the other uh, places that you can find Bubbleweed in our show notes. So check those out. And uh, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about uh, Minute 58. So, Pete, thanks as always. Tomorrow, Andy. Steve insults modern architecture. <laughs> the Diltex Time Troop Believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.